Let me introduce to you today's speaker. Parag Khanna is a specialist in international relations. In 2007, he served in Iraq and Afghanistan as a senior geopolitical advisor to the United States Special Operation Forces. From 2013 to 2018, he was a senior research fellow in the Center on Asian and Globalization at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore. He's been the advisor to the U.S. National Intelligence Council's Global Trends 2030 program. He is also an author, and today I'm going to talk to him about one of his books called Move, The Forces Uprooting Us, which speaks of mobility as one of the features of human civilization and its importance in the past as well as for the present and the future. So yeah, uh, thank you so much, Mr. Kana, for um, um, being able to come on my podcast today. Um, and so let's just like jump s- straight into it. So um, you wrote a new book called Move. So are, can you tell me a bit about this book? Like what sparked your interest in writing this book? Is it something, um, is it a political event that happened recently or anything else? That's a great question. So in a way, each of my books is a book about everything, but it's about how everything affects one thing. So it could be how all of the complex forces of geopolitical change affect diplomacy. That was one of my books, for example. This book is about how the turbulence of the world, whether it's climate change, economic shocks, political upheaval and revolutions, demographic imbalances and aging, how all of those forces affect human geography. And human geography is the distribution of our species. There's 8 billion of us, right? How are we distributed around the world? Why are we where we are? Well, first of all, where are we? Why are we there? How are we situated there? What is life like there? What does it tell us anthropologically about who we are and how we live, right? How is that going to change in the next 10 years, 20 years, and 30 years? All of that is human geography, and human geography is affected by climate change, it's affected by politics, it's affected by economics, it's affected by technology, it's affected by agriculture, all of those things. So I wanted to basically tell the story of our civilization's future through the eyes of just this question of of the where the where question of human geography. So that's what the book's about. And there wasn't one thing that sparked it other than to see that a lot of people were saying that, you know, um, migration is going to stop because of populism and xenophobia, like Trump and Brexit. But instead, what you have is mass migrations from Africa, you know, a civil war, collapse of Syria, and Afghanistan. So the truth is that people are always on the move. To move is human. It's fundamental to who we are as a species. And a lot of people today don't appreciate that. They think that we're sedentary. I'm happy where I am. Why would I ever leave? Why would those people come here? We don't want them here. But if you take the 100,000 year view of human geography, the truth is that we are nomadic species. We're not a sedentary species. We are completely, we have been nomadic for more than 95% of human history since man wandered out of Africa. 
right? And so I want us to rediscover our nomadic roots because we're going to need nomadic skills to survive a turbulent era. Okay, I see. And just kind of building off that term nomadic skills, what trends, um, what are the trends in the history of migration that we can see today in the 21st century? Um, building off um, how like our nomadic nature like reflects why we move around today? Well, so if we take just the most immediate factor, like climate change, you know, the fact is that we also have a fight or flight instinct, right? So, you know, that, that's a pure psychology, right? You see a tiger in the jungle, you run, you don't fight. When the sea levels rise and you live, live right on the water, you don't actually stay in your little stilted house, right? You move, you leave. So human beings are about to flee, right, in large, large numbers. We already are in many ways, the people of Bangladesh, the people of Florida, you know, rich countries and poor countries, people in Alaska, it, all over the world. It could be forest fires. Look at the people of Northern California, where my parents live, or Australia. Natural disasters and, 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 and climate catastrophes are forcing people to move. So in terms of, you know, how we adapt, the amazing thing is that we have such incredible technologies. We can build movable cities, movable homes. We can literally have circular infrastructure. We can have entire cities that grow their own food in hydroponic and aquaponic labs and vertical farms. We can physically put homes onto the back of trucks and move them. We can have all of our energy from solar and wind power. So the challenge is that we have 8 billion people, more than half of whom may have to move in the next 20, 30, 40 years because of climate or other factors. And we have the technologies. Can we scale them? Can we make these technologies available to anyone who needs them in order to preserve our numbers as a species? You know, hundreds of thousands of people die every year because of heat waves, because of droughts. It's actually millions, not hundreds of thousands. If you factor in um, all of the climate disasters, so people who drown in floods, people who get swept out to sea and, um, you know, tsunamis or rising sea levels, people who lose their homes and die in forest fires places, people who die in heat waves, all of those every year, that's many hundreds of thousands of people. And why does that number matter? Well, it's because the human species is actually reaching a demographic plateau, right? And if you study, you know, human geography um, or demographics, you know, that the world population is not going to reach 15 billion people, it probably won't even reach 9 billion people. So my belief, and, and it's a moral view, is that we should do whatever we can to preserve every human life alive today. And the way to do that is to help people to move. And we have the technology and we have the geography. And this is part of why geography is so important. And I always come back to it. You know, uh, Adriana, the, the, the land area of the earth is 150,000 square kilometers right? Every single human being, every one of the 8 billion people in the world could stand side by side in the city of Singapore, right? So human geography is a question of how, well, isn't there a better way for us to distribute the human population than to have Canada be empty and Russia be empty and Japan be depopulating and so forth? Isn't there a smarter, better way? And that requires rethinking everything, sovereignty, borders, politics, economics, 
infrastructure. And, and I want to tackle all those things at once in order to get us to a better human geography. But again, to answer your question, uh, you know, uh, again, but in a shorter one sentence way, we absolutely have the technological capability and the logistical capability to reorganize the, our human geography. The question is, will we do it? I see. And so you mentioned some of the factors that affected like the move of people and human geography around the world. And I just wanted to zoom into one that's been especially prevalent, especially um, recently, um, one of the pandemic. So my third question is how have like pandemics in the past affected patterns of migration and kind of what does this tell us about um, the present day COVID-19 pandemic and um, its impact on the future of human geography? Mm -hmm. Great question. So the, the analogy that's most often used is the Black Death, right, of the, the, of the, of the uh, Middle Ages, of the 13th uh, century, 14th century. And what happened then is that because such a large percentage of the world population, which was mostly in Eurasia, right, at the time, between Europe and Asia, was decimated, um, farmers, rural people moved into cities. And because there were such labor shortages, they were able to lobby and bargain for higher wages. So for those people who survived, the standard of living improved, urbanization you know, occurred more rapidly and so forth. Uh, and also so, you know, investments in sanitation started to you know, bear fruit and so forth. So we saw a lot of reforms take place at that time. So now with the pandemic right now, it has frozen international migration. Now, just to be clear, this is so interesting to be living in this moment. The, the lockdown of the year 2020 has been the most sing, single most coordinated human act in the history of the world. Never has the world actually have all the governments and cities and border, border control authorities and even religious groups all agreed to one thing at the same time which is to say, shut down everything, close everything, close every border. Never has that happened, right? So now, it was a very ironic thing to happen because 2019 marked the highest volume of international travel and migration in history, right? 1.5 billion people crossed a border in 2019. And in 2020, it dropped to like, practically zero by comparison. So the question is what comes next, right? This will be, uh, there will be what I call the next great migration, right? But it's gonna be a whole set of new directions. You know, it's not just gonna be, it, typically Asians within Asia, Africans within Africa, Latin Americans to North America, Europeans within Europe, those are the clusters of migration. What I predict when you factor in climate change and the labor shortages in the Northern Hemisphere, where there are so many old people and not enough young people, is that we're gonna see ever more migration between regions, right? Asians going to Europe, for example, is one really good example. Indians or South Asians going to North Asia, like to Russia and places like that. That's gonna be another major vector. And we haven't seen patterns like that in centuries. Um, so I, I predict some very major shifts um, in populations, but again, gradually, 
gradually. Right now it's zero, right? And, and that's what makes it so interesting. It's not really about hoping that the number goes back to what it was because we arbitrarily care about the number. It's about being able to observe from a dead stop where people go because now we have vaccine passports and biometric certifications and documents you know if you think about historical migrations we guess within a margin of error of a million or 10 million how many people have moved around right how many slaves were moved across the atlantic right how many europeans moved to america we guess you know, 10 million here 50 million there we don't have exact numbers well, right now, this is the 21st century. We have we, we actually can measure every single human being in the world. You're giving off a signal from your phone. Your passport has a chip. You're checked in and out across different borders. We can have precise data on where people choose to go from this moment forward in a way that has never happened before, right? And so it's an open question. I have my hypotheses, right, about where people will go and what directions. But what excites me is the fact that we're going to be able to measure it. I see. Yes, that is exciting. Um, and so I had um, kind of my fourth question is that we're seeing a pushback by some nations against migration, um, as witnessed by, for example, the Rohingya crisis um, in Myanmar, Europe, uh, Europe shutting its borders to migrants from North Africa, for example, or the U.S. wanting a wall along the Mexican border. And um, what do you make of this trend and how much will it discourage migration patterns? Well, there's, there's no doubt that, you know, even with countries that are generous towards refugees and asylum seekers, as Germany has been, as Canada, as Canada has been, it's not enough numerically, right? Just looking at what's going to happen with Afghanistan is a reminder of that, and the tragedy of Syria and Iraq as well, and of course the African political crises and refugee crises. It's not enough. So, you know, it's understandable that countries or societies in Europe and elsewhere are saying, hold on. You know, what's the limit to this? What about assimilation? You know, how do we actually ensure social preservation of social harmony? And that is a big political challenge that these countries face. And I don't think the resistance will go away um, unless, you know, two conditions take place. You know, one is the aging population that is more nationalistic than the younger population will sort of fade from the scene, right? There will be eventually they'll, they'll pass away. But young people are more open to migration. Young people are more accepting of migration. And, um, and that's obviously a positive thing. But there's also counter signs. As people reach my age or a little bit older, they also become more conservative, right? So, for example, in Sweden and in other countries in Italy, they're saying, wait, Syria looks stable enough. We're sending you back. Right. So there are movements in favor of repatriating migrants from places that actually aren't safe, but the government just wants to get rid of the migrants. Right. Um, but I think that in the longer term, there's other factors besides politics. Again, one is climate and climate is making these places unlivable, even if they're peaceful. So imagine that you're a peaceful country. You've tried very hard to remain stable, but climate change has just destroyed your agriculture, your water tables have collapsed. People just have to leave the country, right? 
Um, and then there's demographic imbalances. I mean, Europe needs young people, and it has very few young people. There's only 60 million working age millennials in Europe out of a population of 600 million people, right? So even if they don't like migrants, they need migrants. So I think that, you know, politics, just because the politics may feel xenophobic, it doesn't mean that these countries can afford to remain xenophobic. And there isn't, you know, one thing to import or to remember is that migration is the most sensitive arena of sovereignty, right? It is the one thing left that each government can put its foot down and say, we decide who comes in and who comes out. And you cannot tell me who I let in and who I don't let in. And remember that we live in a world now where you can't control your interest rates. You can't control, you know, some of your own laws. It comes from the European Union or international organizations. Everything is globalized and so many things are coordinated. The one thing left, and I literally actually mean the one thing, Adriana. This is the one thing left in the whole world where the government has a 100% sovereign writ and that is migration, right? So I don't expect every country to learn and have an epiphany at the same time and say, oh my goodness, we really need more people. Let's let in all the refugees and all the young people to come and do our elderly care and collect our trash and build our roads and bridges and tunnels. But I do expect countries one by one to come to that realization. And that's what I call the war for talent. I think that there is going to be a major war for talent in the decades ahead as countries one by one realize that rather than keeping out migrants, they desperately need them. And they're going to start competing to get those migrants, to get those young, talented people who can be entrepreneurs, who can invest, who will pay taxes, who will have children, who will raise children, who will upkeep the infrastructure and so forth. And this is where Asians come in because we don't all start from the same initial conditions. Right now in 2021, Asia has 50, more than 50% of the human population, right? And it's going to be even a higher percentage looking ahead because other regions are aging even faster than Asia is. So the future of the human species is basically Asian youth where young Asians decide to go determines which countries have young taxpayers and young citizens. So a big part of it, remember I mentioned earlier, there's only 60 million working age millennials. Do you know how many working age millennials there are in Asia, just China and India and a couple other countries? It's about 900 million, right? And that's out of a population. Remember, there's an equal and larger number of Generation Z who are even younger, right? So my children, like our Generation Z. So the world's demographic future is determined, is going to be determined literally by how young Asians vote with their feet and where they go. So that's why I think that European countries are actually going to be tripping over themselves to try to recruit Indians and Chinese and Vietnamese who are software engineers or doctors or nurses. And believe it or not, it's already happening very concretely. Uh, if you go to Manila, if you hop on a plane and go to Manila right now, one of the first things, one of the first signs that you will see in Manila, out on the street, 
is paid for by the German embassy. It says, please come and register here. We're going to give you free. We're going to pay for your nursing degree and teach you German on the side and buy you a plane ticket and send you to Germany. Now, the Germans, even the right-wing parties that oppose immigration, don't seem to realize that this is what's going on, right? They're just happily playing their local political games, being anti-immigrant. But their government knows that they have a massive, massive labor shortage. And they need to care for the grandmothers and grandfathers of their country. And the only way to do that is to go all the way to Manila and recruit nurses. So the far-sighted and practical governments of the world have already realized this. And they're actually competing for that young Asian talent. Um, and in that regard, what advice would you give governments on how to communicate with um, xenophobic portions of the population? Oof, it's a good question. I mean, it's, it's actually a very real question. I mean, I, I see this all the time because I, I go to Europe a lot and I talk to leaders and I see that there's almost no European leader with enough credibility politically and enough confidence and eloquence to simply go out in public, grab the microphone and say, what is wrong with you right-wing nutcases? Your politics is actually destroying our society. You know, our elderly people, literally, I mean, I, I don't want to be crude, but they literally don't have anyone to help them change their adult diapers because of your anti-immigrant politics, right? You know, our, in the richest countries in the world, old people die alone in their apartments because there aren't enough workers in hospices to actually take care of them and to give them a dignified retirement. They die in heat waves. They die of starvation. They die in cold winters because they don't actually have, um, because they don't actually have um, enough caregivers in their societies. So it's truly self-destructive. And I don't hear I mean, Angela Merkel of Germany comes closest, but she's about, you know, she's retiring now, um, to being a, a leader who has the Obviously, in America, there's no one with that confidence and competence and credibility. Canada, you know, to come back to Canada, is really the only country in the world where the whole society agrees they need more people, they welcome more people, they celebrate uh, more people. I don't know if you've ever seen this on TV, but... Canadian immigration ceremonies are done in hockey stadiums because hockey is the religion of Canada. So you literally in the, at the halftime, well, every you know period, because there are three periods in a hockey game, in the, in the periods they will literally bring Syrian refugees onto the ice and give them passports and everyone claps and cheers. So that's kind of a long way from building a wall on the border, right? So Canada is like special. I mean, I want every country to basically to be like Canada, right? But, you know, you have to fight for it politically. And it takes people, it, you have to have an educated public, right, which Canada has. They see the numbers and they believe the numbers. Um, and they have to be pragmatic and they have to be confident in their own identity. They have to realize that just because there are more foreigners coming in, it doesn't mean that German-ness or French-ness disappears, because it doesn't. What you want is those people to aspire to become uh, and to adopt the culture 
of the country that they're moving to. Okay, I see. And that was just my concluding question. Um, so I just want to say thank you so much for taking your time to answer my questions. And um, it was a really, really interesting interview. Um, and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Great to join you.